Hey, I want to talk to you if you're somebody who's losing your hair. I think everybody hates their own hair. I hate my hair. And mainly because, I don't know if you can see it, but it gets a little thin. And when your hair starts to thin, that's all you think about. I don't think women understand it. And I don't think guys understand what women go through when they're starting to lose their hair. 66% of us will experience hair regrowth if you go to Keeps. Losing your hair sucks. So do something about it. Go to keeps.com slash save. Keeps offers the generic versions of the only two FDA approved hair loss products out there. They're the generic versions that are going to save you a bundle of money. So what are you waiting for? Just go to keeps.com right now. You can save your hair without ever leaving your couch. You just answer a few questions, take a few pictures of your hair. A licensed doctor is going to review your information, recommend the right treatment for you, and then it's shipped discreetly to your door. Like discreetly, like you're like you're ashamed oh the shame of hair loss it's the happy new hair deal go to keeps k-e-e-p-s dot com slash save and get your first order of keeps hair loss treatment for 50 percent off but you have to go to that web address keeps.com slash save do it now takes a mixture of bravado and luck and cunning to be a war correspondent. Most people are not suited for the job. Most people could never do it. Me, I'm out. For good reason. There are people who are hardwired to be able to short circuit what we're wired to do, and that is stay alive. We naturally run away from explosions and gunfire. Trekking into a war zone requires a human to deny their most basic fundamental instincts. To do it for news is even harder to imagine. I don't know if you remember James Foley. He was the journalist who was captured and beheaded by ISIS. But the merit and the importance of that reporting is immeasurable. Today's guest is not just a war correspondent. She's one of the most impressive war correspondents in the profession. And she's fought a war here in America as well. She takes it to a whole new level. She was a war correspondent in Afghanistan while she was eight and a half months pregnant. I'll give you another example. Following the 9-11 attacks, her instincts were to go to Afghanistan. She got there and she was there when I think 95% of the country was still under occupation of the Taliban. Her accolades are impressive. She's worked at the, some of the best networks in the world. Reuters, Fox, Sky, CBS News, ABC News in London, NBC, CNN, 60 Minutes, CBS Evening News, The Early Show, Face the Nation. She was chief foreign affairs correspondent for CBS News. And then something happened along the way. The most important or impressive thing about our guest is her personal accomplishments. She has overcome things that I don't think any of us would dare to even imagine nothing short of nightmare one after another and yet she persevered she found tremendous meaning in the darkness and emerged a much better person today lara logan you have had a powerfully interesting life, to put it mildly. 
My mother would love that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I want to just start with where you came from, how you got, what, what, your, what your foundation was to try to understand you because I really, I admire you, but I don't understand you. I think you are <laughs> one of the braver people on the planet. Um, so tell me about your upbringing. I would say my foundation is really, uh, has two pillars. One is love and the other is respect. And I learned both of those, um, in, from my family, from where I was born. Um, and you know, it begins in the home, Mm -hmm. but also in the country where I was born. Um, I learned it from the people in South Africa. I learned it from Nelson Mandela. I learned it from my mother. <clears throat> and, uh, and those are the two things I've carried with me. I think that I've been the strongest. I was, I was born knowing who I was. Wow. What does that mean? It means, it doesn't mean you don't learn. It doesn't mean you don't change. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that when people say I'm brave because I, you know, I do this or I do that, I feel like a fraud. Mm. <laughs> I feel a little guilty because I don't know any other way to be. That's just who I am. And it's not even a choice. My son was really afraid to do something at 1.10. He was afraid of doing his Taekwondo class in front of people getting his belt and he wouldn't do it and i brought him home and in my office i have all of these heroes all these people that um from history that are just heroic and uh i sat him down and i said why do i have all these pictures and he thought i was gonna say because they were all heroes they were all strong they all did it and i said and that's what he said and i said no because i think most of them were terrified but they did it. They did it. Do you have that other side where you're like, this is crazy. I'm sitting here in a very vulnerable place. Or do you just, does that not even occur to you? No, it always occurs to me where I am always matters because you don't do this kind of work and go to those places and make it to the other side if you don't think about that you have to take it into account you have to factor it in but so i think you probably share some of this dna right when you're when you're trying to think about sitting down talking to me uh nothing could be easier for you and yet you're still stressed about it because you want it to be the best it can be mm-hmm. of you and you uh, and you take that extremely seriously Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not easy and casual, right? in a sense, right? It's that part of me. And when I'm out there, I want to do the best that I can do. I can never know enough. I can never uh, learn enough. I mean, I'm, I, I literally don't stop talking to people and engaging with people and, um, and taking everything in. Uh, from the time I'm even, it starts even on the flight on the way in. You can always meet interesting people heading into. I into love a war talking. Zone. I love talking to. <laughs> if there's a flight, by the yeah, way, if yeah, there's a flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so for me, that's my <clears throat> that's my focus. I have to I have to make smart decisions. I have a lot of things to consider, and I have to do my job. And uh, 
and and that's an, an eternally obsessive uh, process and it doesn't really allow time for you to be scared but it doesn't mean that I don't get scared it doesn't I'm not immune to those things I'm not you know I know I'm not bulletproof I learned that mm. <laughs> the hard way but um, it just means that I don't allow the fear to guide me or define me So I want to come back to this. I don't want to dwell on the article itself at this point, because I do want to hear you talk about it. But the article, um, Benghazi and the bombshell, which the headline's not insulting at all. Um, (laughs) If I read that alone, there's no way I'd hire you. No. You were... That was the point. Right. right? That was the intent. You were made to look... um, as somebody who's just really power hungry or, or star hungry and you'll mm-hmm. do anything for your career. Um, and everybody was worried that you were going to get everybody killed. Reckless. Reckless. Yeah. That's not what I just heard from you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there is uh, the reason why I say that here is because if you were a man, what you just said would have been fine. You know, you're going into a war zone. You're a, you know, you're a guy and you go in and I'm doing this. But is there a, uh, was there a problem that you were, who you were being aggressive, going in and doing these things? And it's, a, it's because you're a woman, no, it's not because I'm a woman. It's because I'm a feminine woman. It's because I'm a sexy woman. That's the problem. Not just being a woman. There are, um, there, look at the, at the history of this. I mean, when I started out, yes, I was told by the CNN bureau chief in London, no one with hair like that is ever going to be taken seriously as a, as a war correspondent. I was told my accent didn't work. I was told all kinds of things, right? And I... Um, I never let any of that stand in my way. And I did, of course, run into it, you know, when I, I was in Iraq for the, during the last um, months and then moments of Saddam Hussein. And I remember, <laughs> I remember the, the men on the, on the crew who wanted to leave and I wanted to stay saying, you know, you just want to get your face on TV. You just want to be famous. And of course, you know, I, I'd spent years um, in Angola in the Civil War, in uh, in the South African townships when they were on fire and people were being necklaced. I'd been in Mozambique in the Civil War there. I'd, I'd gone to places where that made the Afghan war look luxurious, okay? Because mm-hmm. they have supply lines from Pakistan. And I was, you know, and I was treated as if I was this silly little girl who only cared about her ego and uh, her fame. And I never worried about those things because they weren't true and uh and i know exactly who i am and what i'm doing and why i'm here and also because there were other men in who didn't see it that way and who recognized uh and saw me for who i was and respected that so i've never been one of those women that that likes to complain about you know how i was treated as a woman because I never, I, it never bothered me that I had to work harder. It never bothered. I would have probably done it anyway. I liked it. As a conservative, <laughs> I liked working like that. Right. As a conservative, 
I mean, I came from nothing. I'm the first one to go to college and I never finished college in, in you know, my family um, had nothing built it all from scratch. Of course, as a conservative have had roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Oh, yeah, sure. I don't really care. Yeah. I mean, I only say, you know, being a conservative sucks only because they keep saying there's no, you know, I, we can't make it oppression, oppression. Are you kidding me? Try to do what we do. No Lifetime Achievement Awards for you, Glenn. Yeah, no, nothing. <laughs> right? Nothing. No, so, no DuPonts or Peabody's right, or anything and I else. Don't, and I don't care. I or don't, Emmys. Right. I don't live for that. I don't really care about that. Um, so I appreciate the fact that, you're, that you don't um, focus on, yeah, that's what was going on. You're just trying to get the story. And also, um, I just one thing that I think is important to point out, that article, Benghazi and the Bombshell, that wasn't about um, my being a woman. That was about, um, that was a hit piece. It was an assassination yeah. piece designed to destroy me and my career. That it, was the purpose. I read it as somebody who's, I, you know, have run the blaze for years, mainly into the ground, but <laughs> run, <laughs> run it for years. And... If I if I didn't know better, mm -hmm. I would have read that and said, oh. no way. Now, if I'm a if I'm running an organization in New York, mm -hmm. absolutely not. You're the last person yep. I would have. I at least can recognize the bias. I don't think they see it. I don't think they. Well, you know, you don't have to look any further than the line uh, in that article. Uh, about what happened to me in Egypt, where Joe Hagan, the writer, describes it um, as being groped. And uh, that, you know, with all the things that they, that, with all the dishonest things um, that he put in there to smear me, all the lies that he told, all the, the nasty, snarky, anonymous comments and everything else, um, none of that mattered <clears throat> to me. What I cared about um, was I felt like the moment... I came out of that square and they put uh, that black traditional shador, the rope on me, and I disappeared. That's what it felt like. When, you're, um, when you've been raped, and in my case, gang raped and uh, sodomized and- 25 mm, minutes. It was more than that actually, but um, uh, it was more like, it was closer to 40 minutes. But when, that, when you've lived through that, the one thing that you have, any rape victim knows, any sexual assault victim knows, what you have is your word. Because you can't show all of your injuries, right? And, uh, and in that moment, that man and that magazine, they knew it wasn't in dispute what happened to me in Egypt. Um, there was a record of it. There were witnesses that our security person, Ray, had written an eyewitness account, you know, for the parts that he saw. And he wasn't even there for all of it because they tore him off me after 20 minutes. So um, that just to, for that magazine uh, to stand there and to be lauded by the establishment as truth tellers and, you know, and warriors for what's right and just in our society and the fourth estate and everything else is, uh, is to me absolutely unconscionable that they can write, that they can turn gang rape and sodomy into groping and nobody has a problem with it. You don't hear a murmur. Can we just, can we spend a minute 
there in the square or just right after I, I i don't need the details i got it um but there are a couple things that stood out you said you held on to your cameraman as long as you could because you felt if you let go you would die tell me about that well the week before when we'd been there um and we'd been up in Alexandria on our way into Cairo. Um, we were detained and um, we ended up uh, being held in an uh, Egyptian intelligence uh, facility and, um, you know, cuffed and hooded and interrogated and, and that kind of stuff. And I, and I had gotten very sick and um, passed out unconscious when they stabbed me with a needle and <laughs> threw me on a filthy couch in someone's office. Um, but we'd come home from that and, um, and gone back a week later. Again. Why? <laughs> well, well, <laughs> well, because I knew that Mubarak was, was about to fall and uh, that would change everything in the Middle East. And it was such a, um, a big event and I, I wanted to be you know, I, I, I have like a homing device, mm -hmm. I'm like, like I'm a homing pigeon. Mm -hmm. And when there's something like that, that's, you know, sort of at the center of, um, of many mm -hmm. significant things, I just, I mean, that's where mm -hmm. I go. You know, when a bomb goes off, I'm typically not running away from it. I'm running towards that scene, you know, and mm -hmm. you see all the people passing you. It was happened when I went into Baghdad <laughs> during the, the Iraq war. I remember seeing, you know, uh, lots of people leaving and people on the march out of Baghdad and the Iraqi army on the march with their artillery pieces. I don't even know it, if any other journalist ever saw that because it was quite extraordinary. And we were heading into Baghdad, you know, mm. with the oil fires burning and, um, and the planes, <laughs> you know, the bombers flying. And it was just, it was quite unbelievable. But I knew that I was going the direction I was meant to go. And so um, for me, uh, when I went back to Egypt, it was for specifically for the fall of Hosni Mubarak. And he quit uh, about 10 minutes after we landed in Cairo. So uh, we rushed to the square and um, we only brought a security person with us um, because we'd been arrested the week before and we wanted to show CBS that we were being responsible and that we were uh, taking our security seriously, you know. And um, and in the end, actually, Ray really did save my life because I thought when, when we were separated from the crowd and I thought at first that people were trying to help us and then it turned out actually that wasn't the case at all. They were among the people who raped me, but um, Ray, was the only one that managed that I managed to hold on to and he was the one I mean he was you know I was holding on to his shirt so that's how far he was from me and um, he kept saying to me Lara don't let go just don't let go if you let go you're gonna die Lara get up get up if you don't get up you're gonna die if you, you can't stay down stay on your feet stay on your feet and um, and then he would tell me okay they're they're beating us with sticks and they're taking our passports and they're doing this and they're doing that. And of course, at a certain point, you know, I mean, he didn't want to say what he saw. Um, and when I lost him, I, I thought, this is it. This is the moment now. It's over. I knew that I, on my own, that I had no chance of surviving. And, um, 
And actually, it took me a few years to realize that that was really the moment. Instead of the moment I died, that was the moment that um, I lived because Ray fought his way through the mob to once they discarded him because that was all, you know, it was about what they wanted to do to me. He, uh, he found some Egyptian soldiers and he forced them to come and find me. And that really is what I believe saved my life. More than anything, there were, there were also the women that I fell onto in the square where I was dragged. And, you know, at that point, I didn't have um, the strength to get up anymore. So I was down for the last time then. And so it, it, um, that was fortunate. But the, the young men that jumped up to stand between the mob and the, the women, I think, you know, they did it in part for me, but in part also to protect their own women from what was happening. And all of those things sort of came together um, in a, you know, in a moment that where I had a chance to live um, instead of die. And, and that, that changed everything. at CNN. I know how the Middle East desk works at CNN. <laughs> and um, and it's, I think, obscene. Um, and I, nowhere did I hear the real outcry um, on that at first they were crying, Jew, Jew, Jew. Um, and the, the, just the misogynistic, um, culture that is supposedly just as nice as ours. It's not, it's not. And I don't, I don't understand why the media is, it will kind of just dismiss this kind of just move past this allow somebody say you were just groped and not at least stop and say somebody that we've all watched for a long time just had this happen what does that say about this culture and what does that say about the radicals that are there, that's not all Egyptians, we know that. The radicals that are there and the radicals that are in our own country on the left that are okay with this. They're, they're excusing a lot of this. There's, there's never any reflection on something like this. You know, well, you covered um, about a thousand different things there. No. <laughs> you know, so, I, so I have to pick... Uh, I have to pick which one is perhaps the the most important. I think you're not wrong when you um, when you when you put radicals um, on the left and radicals in the Islamic culture together. In a sense, especially when you look at at how the propaganda of not just radicals in the U.S. but of mainstream politicians has served the interests of. Um, 
you know, of the of radicals in the Islamic world, and um, and and I want to be clear. I'm not saying everybody's radical. I know that. Uh, I mean, I know that myself. I lived in Iraq for five years. I lived in Afghanistan for years, mm-hmm. and I loved being there. I loved living there, and I loved the people that um, that you know, the many people that I was close to and shared those years with. Um, but the perfect example of what you're talking about actually took place today um so this is february what 21st because i don't want to date this go to the new york times and read the editorial written by siraj Hakani. because if there was ever a radical terrorist leader one of the most lethal of our time it's siraj Hakani, who is the leader of the Hakani network in afghanistan as i'm sure you know and the Haqqani network has really functioned as the Afghan Al-Qaeda. This man was given the platform by the New York Times to write an op-ed that casts him as some kind of dove of peace. I mean, that, to me, if you want to talk about not just radicals in this country, but if you want to talk about why liberals, uh, liberal people, the left, whatever you want to call them, I hate those words because they make them, they make it, they sound so judgmental and I don't mean it in that way. But how else do you explain why a, a newspaper like the New York Times gives a voice to someone like Siraj Haqqani? Are they that desperate to get out of Afghanistan? that they really don't care what happens in their wake, that, they, that they're that they going to legitimize a terrorist leader? I guess they are, because this is the same publication that tweeted on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 that this is the day planes attacked the World Trade Center, right? We're just going to remove the people who flew those planes and plotted that and financed it and et cetera, et cetera. I could go on forever. So I, I guess... Um, the important thing there for me is that I didn't understand how this could happen. And all I did was reporting from the ground up through the Bush years, I wrongly assumed, I wrongly assumed that all the problems happened because Rumsfeld was bad and, <laughs> and you know, and Cheney was evil mm-hmm. and, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if we could just get the good guys back again oh you know then all those problems would go away and people would stop lying and people would um you know stop serving their political mm-hmm. interests before you know the truth and etc cetera, etc cetera. and boy was i wrong you know i i stayed the same i kept doing my job the same way and under bush i was a, you know a heroic figure um of the of the of the media and uh, when i continued to do it under obama i quickly found out uh Yeah, that I wasn't the golden girl anymore. Mm. I said the same things about George W. Bush. I had real problems with him at one point. I talked about, well, I was at CNN, talked about, uh, you want something impeachable. Here's what you look at, you know, uh, because everybody was talking about impeaching him. And I had real problems with the way he was running the war, et cetera, et cetera. And I was a supporter at the beginning, less so towards the end, because I thought we really screwed up, you know, um, look, war is about killing people. Kill them quickly and end it and end it. Take You're lawyering the on the away. objective. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I went to Fox and I said the same things, except it was about another guy, Barack Obama. And I was the Antichrist. 
Mm. It's uh, it's how it works. Yeah, it is, and it it's refreshing to see journalists, and there are very few of them that will actually look at the facts. I I, I came into I'm not a journalist, and I came into that world um, from doing radio for years and years and years, and um, and then I come into television, and I don't want to do television. I hate television, and I walk into it naively thinking, oh, well, as long as I have the facts, as long as I can prove it, as long as I can show you, hey, look, don't you think putting this and this and this and this together shows a picture that we should all be concerned about? Or talking about. Or talking about? No. There was no curiosity. There was no, there was no one that was really willing to go, I hate that guy. But you know what? Mm. You mean kind of like uh, with the whole uh, Russia collusion thing? Nobody, and, and, there's nobody that's going to say, "Oh, there's by the way, by the way, <clears throat> wow!" If you're if you're using the criminal justice system as a political weapon, <clears throat> that's bad for all of us. All of us. And now, it's so ironic, of course, because now you hear that with everything happening with with Bill Barr and Trump and Roger Stone, and you hear you literally hear the very people. The right. very people that have been doing this for years right. uh, saying, oh, this president has to go because he's weaponizing the criminal justice system. I love how the word weaponize <laughs> yeah. suddenly became part of our lexicon. Yes. When? Nobody asks when. When did we all start hearing people and using the word weaponize? That is a strategic, tactical term used in disinformation campaigns. It comes, it comes from the programs this country developed to use against its enemies. And it's become part of our lexicon because that's what you call shaping and normalizing, right? Normalizing. What, that word, I wish people would take a look at uh, the strategic document put out by, uh, by the propagandists from Media Matters for America right after Trump's election, that they would resist the normalization of this president. New York Times can normalize Siraj Akhani, but, uh, mm -hmm. but no one, no journalist is allowed to normalize Donald Trump. And if they do, they'll be punished, mm -hmm. is the word they use, punished. And they've got millions and millions and millions of dollars. They've targeted me, they've targeted you. Um, and they and they call themselves a watchdog, and the media, the New York Times and others, calls them a watchdog. They, Liberal media watchdog. They get the email. I've seen it happen. Mm -hmm. They get the email, read it. It must be true. Let's yep. do a story on that. That's like taking a story from Alex Jones, and Alex Jones at times may be more accurate than Media Matters. No, it's far worse. I tell you why. Because what's the difference? What's the difference? Media Matters has an information infrastructure. They have a propaganda infrastructure, and uh, they have a research arm. They have um, a news media arm. They call it the American Independent. It was ShareBlue. They have uh, Media Matters, which is their propaganda arm, and and it goes on from there. They produce books. They produce data. 
They have artificial intelligence, algorithms, and apps. They search everything that you've ever said. They um, and then beyond that, they partner with groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center. So they and have, Google. Oh yeah. YouTube. It's not just. No, they allow them to help them write the algorithms right. that determine what's hate speech and what's right. not. So and when you <clears throat> add into that, so now all of these uh, civil society organizations, um, groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center that have such, you know, enormous history mm-hmm. in this country that, that appear to represent one thing. How can they be working with a propaganda organization? Mm-hmm. How can that happen? And they, they give themselves titles like Senior Research Fellow. I'm a Senior <laughs> Research Fellow at Media Matters for America, which is what? A propaganda assassination organization, right? Where all they want to do is assassinate not just journalists, but according to them, right? I'm using their words mm-hmm. to go after any politician that normalizes Trump, whether they're on the left or the right. And by the way, if they're on the left, they're taking them out too. They want to make sure that no one on the left, no Democratic politician, dares to normalize this president or vote with him or work with him or anything because that's a threat to them as well. Meanwhile, they say nothing about Antifa, the Bernie bros. Bernie in the debate the last debate said you know these people that are threatening people online those are russian uh assets that russia is wow is right that's crazy talk crazy talk it was one of his supporters that went and tried to shoot all of the members of uh, the republican congress in virginia the guys two of them on his staff currently that hold that same position same position they both are on tape saying they pretty much like to do the same thing one wants to burn milwaukee down to the ground uh the other one uh, says it's time to get your rifle learn how to use it and start taking people out the campaign issued a memo that said, just keep your head down. This will blow over. Hmm. How is how? Where is where is the press? Where? Wh- it's really interesting because it's reminiscent um, for anyone who knows a little bit of Nazi history mm-hmm. of the brown shirts, right? Exactly that's, right. That's what it reminds you of, those kind of tactics. Nobody can have guns except our guys. And I actually saw um, someone online I was researching the other night was actually calling for, we need Antifa at our rallies. Where, mm-hmm. where, are the, where is Antifa to protect us? It's really interesting to see that, that um, kind of... Um, attitude really coming from from the left which is supposed to be anti-gun and anti-violence right um and of course the media narrative on this fueled by people like media matters Mm -hmm. is that antifa are the anti-fascists and they're fighting the fascists therefore they are good and their use of violence is good because they're going after the bad people but as someone much smarter than me actually on this subject pointed out to me take a look at their platform look at their manifesto look at what they actually believe in it's not um a democratic liberal philosophy no it's not it's actually is it are they in favor of freedom of speech no No. uh freedom uh of association no no free markets no in fact they're against all of those things so in fact um aside from immigration their uh their platform is pretty fascist 
They're this, they're, if you look at the Nazi, <clears throat> the American Nazis, you look at their platform. Talk to, what's his name? Richard Spencer, I think is his name, the head of it. Oh, you're He's, really getting me in trouble now. Uh, right? You really are. You know, thanks, Ken. Yeah. I didn't have enough targets on my right. back. Just add, oh, right, neo-Nazi. Thank you but so you, much. You awesome. listen to him. He doesn't believe in the Constitution. He doesn't believe in freedom of property. He doesn't believe in any of these things. He believes in universal health care. He believes in all of the... They're socialists. Oh, so they agree. They agree. <laughs> they agree. They actually have more in common than, than they want to admit. Right, they're an alternate to the right they're an alternative to the right oh, Alt. i see right. that's what it's it means crazy wow isn't it wow so let me ask you we're not allowed to have those conversations by the way i know just the fact that you had that conversation makes you a neo-nazi you know that right? yeah i do yeah i do you know and i um i have a daughter who has cerebral palsy and um <laughs> back in the late 80s early 90s I became very sensitive to what people would say and how people would react. And, and um, I did a lot of volunteer work for Special Olympics and, and everything. And, and I became uh, dangerously soft because my heart was leading me. And I think this is an American trait. I hope it's a human trait, but Americans generally they don't care just live your life the way you live <laughs> you know what i mean i don't want to hurt you don't hurt me live and let just live live and let live okay yeah so when you say you know hey handicap that kind of really hurts and people are like i i'm sorry i didn't but it's gone so far now to where i think of the words of hitler where he says oh and the bigger the lie the better mm. We are now to a place to where society has beat people up and bullied people so much that you will actually say, not you, not me, but a lot of people will either say or just remain silent on a man can have a baby too. Man can have a menstrual cycle. Mm. No, they can't. And if you're buying into something that big and that you will stay silent, all the rest of it is nothing. It's so interesting because society doesn't beat us up. People yes. beat us up, right? And um, and there are people hiding behind things like yes. society or it was a mistake or it was an accident. And, um, and that's the frustrating part for me is that um, the, the, the real bad guys, the people behind all of this, driving this, they know how to exploit what is already there, right? They know that most journalists are liberal. It doesn't mean all journalists are bad and nobody right. reports the truth. What it means is there's a sympathy there. Mm -hmm. There's a natural mm -hmm. uh, shared common ground mm -hmm. that can be exploited. And that's exactly what they're doing. And so human nature is, Nobody wants to be alone on the 50-yard line Correct. at the Super Bowl, right? No. Oof, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. There's only a few people that are really built for that. And <clears throat> and so what does everybody know? We, it's easier to go with the crowd than not. And so they count on that and they use that. And they don't need they don't need to have an army of, you know, 10 million people. They just need to have enough to trigger 
That behavior mm-hmm. and the most effective weapon they have is when we police and censor ourselves. We do it for them. That's the silence you hear, right? That's what it is. That's us policing and silencing and censoring ourselves so that we don't pay the price that we see others pay. So <clears throat> you, nobody's paid more of a price than you. Well, there's always um, someone. You can always yeah. find someone. Everybody gets right. their, we all, everyone but, pays yeah, the, we the piper, all, as my mother used to say. Correct. <laughs> we all pay yeah. a price, especially if you're willing to stand up against the other side or your own side just say look i i'm just trying to tell you the truth you pay a heavy price i've never been a cool kid ever i was never a cool kid at school i was never cool and i always wanted to be cool but i never was cool um and you it's a natural drive to be accepted to want to accept an emmy to have somebody go Good job. Oh, yeah. I mean, how does the average person? I asked a, a woman who's one of the righteous among the nations. Sea of righteousness is in all of us. That courage is in all of us. How do you water it? And she said, you misunderstand. The righteous didn't suddenly become righteous. They just didn't go over the cliff like everybody else. <laughs> so how do you how do you water or are you just unique? Are we just freaks of nature? There are always going to be just a few people that are willing to do it. How do you get people to say, it doesn't matter what they say about you. It doesn't, your job is not as worth as worth as much as your word. Nobody, nobody wants to be alone. It's, it's terrifying. In a sense, so what we have, what we we all need that in some way, in some form or another. We can say we don't, but we're not being completely honest with ourselves, right? Because a little part of us does want that or need it. So what you do, you know that when you stand up, you're letting everyone else out there know you're not alone. I can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. That's what all of these people have done. Look how Nelson Mandela was a little kid in the middle of rural Transcon, the wild coast of South Africa, mostly dirt roads and cattle. And and that man changed the world. Mm-hmm. He didn't start out thinking, I'm going to go change the world. He just followed what he knew in his heart. He knew the difference between right and wrong, and he was never going to run from that. It was always going to be worth it to him. That man at his trial for terrorism, do you remember that, the Ravonia trial, all the way back in the late 60s? His friends, his family, the, the leadership of the ANC, his party, they begged him not to give the speech that he gave. And <clears throat> I go back to it because it's burned into my soul and into my memory, um, but also it still leads me. That's the thing about principles. They, they, they endure everything. They endure through time. Why is Shakespeare relevant today? Because the principles, and Nelson Mandela wrote <clears throat> these words. He said, among many other things, but the ones that stuck with me, he said, freedom is an ideal for which... I would like to live, Mm. but it is also an ideal for which I am quite prepared to die. 
And everyone thought, everyone close to him thought that would be perceived by the South African government as a challenge and that he would extinguish any chance he had of not being executed. And he said it anyway. He didn't know when he said it that he would have the next 27 years behind bars. He didn't know that. He was quite prepared to die. So that is, that's uh, the spirit that guides uh, me. You know, that's all I know. So you're from, you're from South Africa. You grew up with that. You saw things that Americans <coughs> have never seen. We have not seen these. I mean, oh my gosh, the poor here. The poor here? Go anywhere else in the world. We are poorest are still one of the richest 10% globally. So we don't have that experience. It, it's just, it's like times you just want to shake America and say, would you just open your eyes and look what you have? Yes. How do we, and I don't mean stuff. I mean, the freedom, the ability, somebody can come here from Afghanistan or from from, uh, you know, uh, the occupied territories, if you care to call it that anywhere. And if you apply yourself, if you are good, if you're sharp, you can succeed where other nations, other societies will squash you down. It may not be utopia, but it's still the best in the world. And we are just dismantling it. If the American dream were not so powerful, would it really be something that people talk about all across the world? Would it really be something that people chase? They come from all kinds of life. So being from South Africa, seeing us from what you've probably thought of us when you lived there hmm. to what you felt, what did you, what did you think then? What did you think when you first came here and where are we now compared <clears throat> well, for me, I think one of the things that um, many Americans don't understand is that this country is defined by the coasts. Mm -hmm. The media and publishers, books, all of that, where, is all, where does most of it, the vast majority of it, and the centers of power, where do they reside? On the East Coast, New York City, and the... the the West Coast, Hollywood, defines America mm -hmm. in the entertainment world and music, right? Mm -hmm. So, and look at, so those two things, that's our view and our vision of America from the outside. Nobody has any concept of the middle, the flyover states, right? The, the place that... That's the heart. Right? When you're here, that's the heart. No, no not according uh, to no. New York well, and yeah, L.A. I know. Not according to Hollywood and, uh, and the media. And so one of the things that for me I think is left out of the narrative that most people don't understand is that the American dream is built on hard work. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary how hard people actually do work. There are a lot of people who don't, but rarely the average American works very, very hard and mm -hmm. often more, you know, more than a couple of jobs. Mm -hmm. I live in flyover country. Okay. I live in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere in the hill country in Texas. And <clears throat> I'm done apologizing to all the people that I know and my friends and people that I meet on the East coast for living um, in a sea of red 
as people have said to me. And I'm done pointing out, which is not honest because I'm pointing it out now, that every... <laughs> this is the every, last time. This is the last time I'm going to say this. Right. Every city in Texas went Democrat in the last uh, election. You know, um, every big city. So uh, uh, I have learned that visiting those places, glimpsing them, is not the same as actually living there. I have learned so much about what it's really like to be in rural America, where there's, you can't just call and get your washing machine repaired. I mean, sometimes, you know, my bosses or colleagues will say with exasperated, well, how can you not, you know, have done this or have done that? And and I'm like, well, because it's, it's, it's taken two months to get someone to come here who thinks they might be able to repair the dryer. <laughs> you don't know what, you know, right. I mean, we put salt in our water. We pull it out of the ground. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't begin to, I will come home at three in the morning from interviewing a world leader and I'll be doing uh, laundry and on my hands and knees cleaning the floor because I cannot bear the thought of waking up without it being done. And there's nobody else to do it. Okay. Um, besides us, we're doing it. And so um, I've learned about that. But I think also living in the U.S. as opposed to when I was living in Iraq for years and working in the U. you know, working for an American company, living in London, working for an American company, visiting, being married to an American. That was not the same as coming to understand the principles of this country, like that uh that democracy here works because of equal representation. You don't have, I've seen democracy fail. I've seen it, you know, succeed and I've seen it fail mm-hmm. in all kinds of places. Democracy will always fail. True democracy. A that's representative right. republic that's will right. not. And that's missing from the conversation. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that. So I'm mystified why nobody has asked Pete Buttigieg about uh, eliminating the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Does it? Does it not? register that well does it not register you're from indiana (laughs) right why would anyone from indiana ever vote again if you get rid of the electoral college it won't matter right none of your votes will matter and all of these places you know even south africa even nelson mandela made a deal for the first south african election the first democratic election in south africa he traded away votes of his own party so his majority wasn't too big and he gave them to his his main rival uh, opposition, you know, um, on the black political front. And uh, because he, he knew that if they were humiliated by the election results, that he wouldn't be able to deliver anything. He wouldn't be able to build the country. He wouldn't be able to bring people together. I don't know if anybody is willing. To, I don't know if anybody wants that. I, I think there's there comes a point to where people have been shoved up against a wall in their corners for so long and belittled and that I fear that there is, and maybe hopefully we're moving past this, but I fear there's a point to where I just want to win. I want to shut you up. You know what I mean? That's, that's deadly. No. That's what's happening on the left. Just shut them up. Well, that's not just happening. That's orchestrated. That's deliberate. You sound like the biggest conspiracy theorist ever. You know. Who are they that are orchestrating? I'm only playing. No, I, I know, know. I know. But, I know. But. Well, th- this is. We, it's easy to see the patterns. And when these patterns emerge, mm-hmm. um, they lead you uh, to strategies mm-hmm. and to tactics. Mm-hmm. And uh, none of those things just happen on their own. That's not how real life works. 
So yes, conspiracy is a conspiracy theorist is a label that is used to silence people mm-hmm. and shut people up. Mm-hmm. And you're only a conspiracy theorist, by the way, if you're conservative or you're on the right or what you're saying is something that echoes on the right or that or, people on the right agree with. It or doesn't hurts the left. Is like if right. it hurts the left. Well, and you know, particularly hurts the progressive movement. Yes. Because um, because I think there are you know there are a lot of people in the middle. There are a lot of people on the left, on the right, mm-hmm. who uh, would want to have these conversations, be willing to have them if they could. We should define. I I look at the left as the 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 scary group of people that don't that are not looking for uh, a, a new American uh, you know chapter. They're looking. America is bad. Shut it down. I say that's left. Then. From that is the progressive, autocratic kind of left, then the liberal I see. medium. So that's to me, that's my spectrum. That's why I use that. So um, what I find when I go to different places in this country, they can be cities, they can be yeah. towns, they can be big, small. It can be, you know, it can be in California. It can be in Nebraska. It can literally be anywhere. I find that actually, if you're civil and you're honest, most of the time, you can get past just mm-hmm. about anything. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, I do have my red lines and my red lines are real, <laughs> right? Um, but, and, but when the, when the conversation just uh, disintegrates into uh, emotion, that's when you know that you're not dealing, yes, it's over. Mm-hmm. You're not dealing in the realm where someone wants to have a conversation of substance. Mm-hmm. And look at that. Look at that as in the context of a smear campaign and pressure tactics mm-hmm. and propaganda, right? Look how that happens all the time. I, you know, go back and read the document produced in, nine, in uh, uh, I think it was 2012, about uh, gun control and how to guide people through um, that, that movement um, mm-hmm. to make your case. It literally says in there, don't take on this argument. Don't take on the Second Amendment argument. Don't take on this because that doesn't work. Um, use the emotional argument. It's, you know, and, and that's the playbook. And it's the playbook across all different kinds of platforms. And, and th- you know how I can prove this isn't a conspiracy? Because those documents exist. exist. Yeah. Read um, the, the strategic plan for Media Matters for America in the wake of Donald Trump's election. Look it's at their editorial priorities. Terrifying. Well, it's, Thank you for reading that. <laughs> well, and I wish I don't understand how so many people affected by this haven't um, read it and familiarized themselves with it. Because look at the editorial priorities. They line up with every single thing that, the, that has dominated uh, the news media since Trump selection. There is um, his conflicts of interests, his collusion with Russia. He's not, he's got the legal mandate, but not uh, the popular mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, the popular, he won the popular vote. He's not uh, the legitimate president. He's the l- least popular president in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, one after another, after another, you can see um, all of these stories. You can see where they originated. Right. This happened before any of these right. actions were taken. Right. The Supreme Court is in there. Supreme Court nominees opposing everything this administration does in the court. Look at what's happening in the courts. Why, is it, why isn't that being talked about? So, um, you, you know, you, you, look, you look at these things and um, to me, it's becoming more and more obvious. It, to me, I'm now going, oh, come on, dummies. You're not. 
this stupid America. You're de- Democrats. I know you. I live next door to you. Uh, you're not a stupid person. You love the country. I'm seeing people like Bernie Sanders and I'm seeing the audience in the debates boo capitalism. Uh, stand against all of the things that are fundamentally American that I know you as a Democrat, you're not a communist. You're not a socialist. You don't want to get rid of Wall Street. You, you want some reforms. You want to clean things up. But that's not who you are. When are they waking up or do they or are they? Do you see anybody waking up? You know what I see from from my experience? I mean, the yes, capitalism offers many opportunities but what, what was i just saying it's also about hard work mm. right and anyone living the american dream knows what a struggle it can be right and it's exhausting and um and for me you know i'm i at least have a lot of uh, great things in my life that make up for that struggle that make it worthwhile not everybody does right i can see light at the end of the tunnel i get to do amazing things um not everybody does so what i see is that Um, These ideas, they're incredible ideas. Who wants um, anyone to, to, to die because they can't afford medical care? Nobody. Who wants any child to go to school hungry? Who wants, um, who believes that being saddled with, you know, extraordinary amounts of debt and a, um, an education that makes you unemployable, that renders you almost useless and, and no ability to pay, who thinks that's a good idea? Who wouldn't give free health care, free uh, college tuition? Wouldn't you want all of that? Yes, as ideas. Of course they catch fire, especially with the youth, because they're great ideas. And, um, and I, I believe in all of those things. But there's a moment when reality comes up against ideas, right? And that's what you're talking about. And um, that's not what many people who escape into that world want to address mm. they, because it's just hard. What's the other thing that those ideas really do? They take responsibility away from the individual and personal responsibility is one of the most exhausting and important and powerful things ever. In fact, if anything defines this country and, and Western civilization, in a sense, it's personal responsibility. Yeah. Taxes, not, not a big thing, not popular across the Middle East right. and, you know, and Afghanistan and places like that, right? And in many parts of Africa. I mean, people just look at you like, you know, of course, uh, of course, you know, anything we can do to not pay taxes. I don't, nobody likes paying taxes, but, you know, in, in this country, you accept that, you know, paying your taxes is a critical part of, you know, of funding um, the country and the, and the lifestyle and, you know, the values mm-hmm. that you believe in, mm-hmm. right? Hmm, not so much, right? You try uh, in Afghanistan, it's a badge of honor to get out of paying any possible tax of right. any description. So, so it's easy to see how people, it's not that, that people are standing up saying, I reject everything that America is. It's more, it's more that this idea is like a lifeline in a way. I, um, I think uh, what well, we homeschooled our children. Oh, good. God almighty. That's can a you lot cut of work. Me? Yeah. Can you cut Oof. me some slack? And I had very little to do with this, mainly my wife, but good heavens. I think when people say I can't homeschool, there are some who can't, they really can't. But I think there's a lot of parents that don't 
They don't want to. And they don't and they they'd rather just this idea of having your kids, having them taken uh, and they're they're in school for a few hours, you know, eight hours a day. I can do my thing. Somebody else is teaching. They don't. They think there's a partnership there. They don't see that as a possible adversarial role the school is playing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they're kind of and it's it's a relief. I I don't mm. I don't have time to do it. Mm. I don't know if I'm qualified to do it. So just take them, educate them and bring them back. And we have this naive trust that, well, we're all on the same page. We all believe the same thing. They're not going to teach them anything harmful. Mm. And we're sending them into the lion's den now. Well, it's very interesting point, you know, the way you put it like that. I mean, I will say we homeschooled my son. I say homeschooled. That's so dishonest in a way, because actually I found a fabulous woman to teach my <laughs> child for a year um, until she said, OK, I've reached the end of what you know, they, they talked and they agreed mm-hmm. it was time. He wanted to go back to school because mm-hmm. he wanted that social part mm-hmm. of it. And my son is is um, incredibly smart. Um off the charts, but also severely dyslexic. So he's always been in that difficult place mm-hmm. where he's um, so far beyond his uh, peers in many respects, but also so far behind mm-hmm. and he's painfully aware of it. So he was, you know, we were very um, worried about him uh, and doing the right things for him, not, not you know, messing it up from the start. But I can honestly tell you that if I was the one homeschooling him or my husband, I mean, that child would, would not be reading right now <laughs> because it's just, I mean, we're just it's not built to be able to do it. Overwhelming. However, I agree um, completely with you that this idea of a partnership is misplaced in many respects. And I it see is it under the system that we have now. Yes, I'm, it's better with private schools because mm-hmm. private, many private schools are forcing the parents to come in. No, no, no. We're not here to babysit you. You got to come in. You have to volunteer. You have to be part of it. You know, there's that partnership. But public school is. I fail on all of those counts. I just want to say, but I do my best. But um, but well, the thing that um, I find so staggering is, you know, to have my my children at age six talking about um, sexuality and gender. And I'm like, wow, I mean, I haven't even had a chance to talk to them about about that, you know, it's sort mm-hmm. of, and then you start to realize um, uh, that that partnership is really not uh, just a partnership. It's something else. You're, you, but you know, the world that they live in, that's also the world that they live in. So I try really hard, you know, with my children just to be um, as, as brutally, um, honest as I can and not hide away from things. And, and we get into it sometimes. I mean, even though they're mm. <laughs> nine and 11 mm-hmm. and 15. No, the, uh, I think kids now are much more wise, uh, but much more uh, aware aware of, of things not yes, wise not but, not necessarily uh, wise yeah. worldwise my, my son rescued a, um, a baby bird and you know we did all the things mm-hmm. with it and then he wanted to give it a name and he said to me uh i said what are you going to call it and he said well i don't know mom but it have to be a transgender name because we don't know if it's a boy or a girl. And I said, for crying in a bucket, child. <laughs> this bird is either a boy or a girl. Pick it. Pick one. Um, can we go back to politics and Ukraine? What was that all about? 
Sure. Well, <laughs> we there's still a lot we don't know. And so I hesitate. I don't want to sound like I'm stating things definitively. The signs uh, are all there, though. Um, one of the in- big indicators that I've learned uh, to recognize from experience is that the 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 louder the protest, uh, the stronger the cry, the bigger the crime. Mm-hmm. You really, um, you really have to wonder why why it's so important that we don't have a conversation about this yes that we don't talk about this um and that we look somewhere else there's two it's it's if you have if you take the politics out of it and i know that a lot of people you know just don't won't see it that way but for me what are the principles that you're looking at here mm-hmm. you know and there's um there's a very there, there's a, an overwhelming amount of evidence and indicators um, that what was happening there was was worth looking at. Um, you said at one point, I don't remember which podcast you were on, but you were on a podcast, a conservative, and uh, I think you took on Barack Obama. And you you questioned Afghanistan, I think, his policies or the Taliban, I think. And uh, you stated, well, this is, you know, this is the end of my career being. Yes, this is uh, this is professional suicide. That wasn't that wasn't just um, taking on that. That was where I where I talked about journalists, journalists, most journalists being, you know, liberal or Democrat. Um, Maybe kind of just gotten past that now are you i mean you talk about should a journalist talk about politics i mean if i asked you what you think about donald trump should you answer that well my answer to that has always been when i'm uh when i'm reporting and i'm in my role as a journalist i um i have a responsibility to make sure that i separate opinion from Mm -hmm. facts and and because there's only one truth there's only really one set of facts. We either sat here and had this conversation or we didn't, right? Mm-hmm. And people like to say, no, the truth depends on where you come from or, you know, what the color of your skin and whatever. No, actually, it really doesn't. Your perception of it, you know, that how you feel about it, right. that is affected by those mm-hmm. things. But the actual, the truth itself, there's only one, right? right? And so um, it's a, that's... It's a, it's a misunderstanding of the advertising, um, the advertising uh, idea of reality um what is it um perception is reality Mm. no it's not it's not in advertising it might be but in truth it's not you can make it feel real right but it's still not real yes and that's our refuge as journalists right that's what protects us from our own bias is that that's the thing that we're working to find and if you stick with that and just go wherever that thing called the truth wherever it takes you that's what to me defines us at our core i mean yeah. the best of us right? right that's what a journalist at your best that's what you aspire to be and um and and so that's how i got into trouble <laughs> mm-hmm. because i'm not a political operative and i'm not a political activist and I'm, in fact i'm not an activist i'm a journalist <laughs> right? right and i'm not a lawyer in a court of law trying to prove something is true or not true and um and i'm you know i'm not a, a strategist i am a journalist that's what i do so um and that's so, it's so important because 
I've always said that everything I've done in my career, no matter who I've worked for, whether it was at a newspaper in South Africa or at 60 Minutes, I do my job the same way. I'm still looking for the same thing. It's called the truth. And um, and I have enormous respect. And I'm so, I'm very grateful to have worked where I have worked. I've been at 60 Minutes. But at the end of the day, I never really worked for 60 Minutes or CBS. What I worked for was that thing that I was pursuing that every journalist who's looking for that and cares about that wants to find. And what people want us to believe is that there's two separate sets of facts. There really aren't two separate sets of facts. There's only one truth. And if you separate your opinion from what you know to be true, then I think that that's fair enough as a journalist. We do it all the time. At 60 Minutes, what we would say, we'd do things like, um, we'd say, you know, um, over the week we spent with so-and-so, um, what we noticed was, or in all the time we've been covering the war in Afghanistan, 19 years now, um, we'd never encountered anything like this, right? So, so you're, the, the audience can tell, the viewer knows you're giving your opinion, your observation. I love how people say journalists are not supposed to ever give their opinion. I was savaged for it when I um, made a speech in Chicago at the Better Government Association. And the speech, actually, I spent an hour and a half talking about the return of Al-Qaeda to Afghanistan, which is a story I'd just done on 60 Minutes. I made um, a passing reference uh, to Benghazi that was brief. I said, you know, that, that I, I think I said something like, I hope we're doing more about Benghazi than, than we say we are. There's some, hope there's something we don't know about because if you're not, you're sending a message of weakness to your enemies, not one of strength. And considering that that was the first U.S. ambassador murdered in over half a century, um, that was the basis on which I was saying that. And the basis, the context was that the administration at the time was saying Al-Qaeda was finished and done and diminished and over, created this false thing called, what is it, core Al-Qaeda, as if the core of Al-Qaeda you know, was only in Afghanistan and that's the only thing that mattered, except there was no core. And the number three in Al-Qaeda was in Yemen and had never been in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. never been based there. So, I mean, it was all just a pack of, of, of political... Uh, dishonesty and deceit and they focused on that comment about Benghazi and used that to to smear and target me later when I covered Benghazi and say you see she was biased and right wing and a conspiracy theorist from the start and she should never have been able she should never have reported on that story well good lord if that's the standard what about all these journalists being asked for their analysis we call it analysis and we check the box and say okay we're still Mm -hmm. objective journalists not giving our opinion we're just giving our analysis and that is you can give analysis based on your reporting and that can be separate from fact but mm, that's a real gray area there and uh, to say those are mutually exclusive concept is uh, is that's giving yourself a free pass to me, right? And if you look at newspapers, they have opinion pages. In fact, the Washington Post's opinion pages have exploded, right? They've expanded the number of them. There's, um, there's just about as much opinion in the Washington Post today as there is news. And in fact, and then if you add the fact that the, uh, the news reporting is infused with opinion that's presented as fact, Correct. then, uh, you know, it's you're getting into opinion. crazy numbers. It's almost right. all opinion. And what could be more dishonest than to present your opinion as a fact? Correct. 
Cars today are computers on wheels, from electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors. But all of this tech is really expensive to fix when it breaks, and that's why I am covered with CarShield. I have a couple of old trucks that are not covered by warranty anymore, and I have CarShield because it's affordable protection that have saved me literally probably $13,000 between the two trucks for covered repairs, computers, GPS, electronics, all of it. You can choose your favorite mechanic. I take it to the dealership when something goes wrong. CarShield takes care of all of it. They get you back on track in no time. They have 24-7 roadside assistance, a rental car while yours is being fixed. They've helped so far over a million customers drive with confidence knowing that you have coverage from America's number one auto protection provider. So whether you have 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles on your vehicle, it's going to break. Don't wait until your check engine light comes on. Get covered today by CarShield. Shield 1-800-CAR-6000. 800-CAR-6000. Mention the promo code SATURDAY or visit carshield.com and use that promo code SATURDAY. You'll save 10%. That's carshield.com, promo code SATURDAY. Deductible may apply. What's the future of the media? You know, I always say I'm not a prophet when I get asked questions like that. What's the future? What's going to happen in the war? I don't know. I'm going to look at my crystal ball. <laughs> Should I know, Glenn? Um, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I mean, when I say that, no, too, I'm you... also not a visionary. I don't. I, I'm, I'm the guy you send in when you want to know what the hell's going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's me. So, so let's approach it that way. Um. Back in 2005, I started seeing real signs of of division and trouble coming in the country. And I started doing my homework and I, I read up and studied as much as I could on revolutions in countries and how they start and how they're fomented and, mm. and what, you know, what things do you need to control to be able to do it? And I just been checking the list and I can tell you where we are, you know, based on that. That doesn't mean I know what's going to happen. It's just I can see this progression and by watching it if i were in the belly of the beast i would know even more you're in the belly of the beast is there is there a sense that because what has to happen is a great humbling for all of us a great humbling is there a sense of gosh i mean are we part of the problem is there any sense of do you see it i don't i'm asking no, you you no, but do you, you, you see it no. i mean if, if it was there you would see it if it was there then uh everyone who published false accounts of what happened at the lincoln memorial with nick sandman and nathan yeah. phillips they would have they would not have revised their stories and doubled down and then looked at other ways to criticize, you know, privileged kids and Catholic yeah. kids and Catholic schools and this and that and oh and don't never don't even you know don't even go to the 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 red hat right. So uh, where you would see that accountability, you would see news organizations that took that <laughs> that were awarded Pulitzer prizes for their reporting on Russia Russian collusion the non-existent collusion, you would see news organizations standing up and saying, you know what, uh, we're not okay with this. We're not okay with this anymore. You would not see John Brennan and Clapper being paid to comment on the mm -hmm. things that they have a vested interest in shaping and steering and lying about. Mm -hmm. You would not see 
you would not see the same thing happening with Ukraine that you saw happening with Russian Russia. collusion. You would not see Adam Schiff be given a platform across the media space without being challenged. How how can you not challenge him when he says things that you now know to not be true? How can you allow Maxine Waters to go on and still talk about Trump as if he is a, a, a Russian agent for Vladimir Putin and as if the entire Mueller investigation never happened and Horowitz's report never happened and still see people cite Carter Page as if he's a Russian spy when he was actually an American spy, right? How can that be happening? Now, I'm just, oh, I'm burying myself once again <laughs> as I think about the the story I'm doing on um, that is about the way people who believe and feel that they've been left out of the media conversation in this country for the longest time because their views um, don't fit with the liberal worldview that most journalists have. I'm doing a story looking at the media from their point of view. It's their story. The and media's point of view or the, the people, people who've been left, left out. So, the forgotten I mean, man. I hit just about every, whew, I hit every... <laughs> possible <laughs> nuclear issue that you can think about i mean from from anti-abortion or pro-life however you whatever mm. you want to call it to uh russia to ukraine to uh antifa um i mean if if i i know <laughs> i know the attack is coming and this one has to be bigger and it has to be um worse and it has to be more effective and and they they don't when they come for you they don't just want you to lose your job they want you to lose everything 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 your your reputation your future your ability to feed your children to keep a roof over your head they want to annihilate you i think they call it cancel culture so i know i know it's coming and this is treacherous ground and it's hard i i'm very uncomfortable reporting on um my own profession and as you know especially my opinions out there on this i've said a lot about it and so um i have to take that into account and it's fraught with conflicts of interest and the new smear right have you seen it they're using it on john solomon he didn't properly oh disclose his conflicts of interest so it's not enough to disclose it someone is going to make a subjective judgment about whether it's mm -hmm. properly disclosed or not and he wasn't and and he did some journalistic things like calling for calling sources and no, but that doesn't count. No, but no, 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 no that doesn't count. You right. no, no, don't talk. No, no, no. <laughs> what, what document? No, I don't know. Don't right. look at the document. Right. Solomon is compromised, and he's uh, and he's not disclosed his conflict no, of interest, and he's toxic, and you don't want to touch him. Right. I'm doing to you what you did to me. I know, right? but the but the hill is actually saying that because he did that, because he actually was stepping into the circle of a journalist and saying this is not just my opinion i reached out and i talked to this person and this person and this person and here's what they said that was a compromise oh wait so what they're saying is if you don't do any journalism and you just write whatever you want <laughs> that's okay apparently that's that's you're good to go right you, but because Khani giving your opinion in the new york times uh mm -hmm. on their editorial page wow i mean that's like we well, see it's that i always say this is one of my rules when one 
plus one doesn't equal two, something's up. <laughs> because if it conflicts with the way you know it works in the natural world, it's not natural. Mm -hmm. You said something at the beginning of the interview that stuck with me. I'm an alcoholic, uh, and I remembered when my whole life burned down, and I had nothing. And uh, the only thing besides my family, the only thing that I wanted back was my name, my, my word. To be able to look somebody in the eye and go, this is true. This is what I believe. Alcoholics lie themselves mm. into everything. And so you find yourself and you realize you could take everything away. Everything but if I lose my word, I have nothing. Hmm. You said at the beginning of the interview that you, um, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but you felt in the square that you didn't die. You, you won, you, you, you lived that day and you spoke about in a way, your word that you yeah, have an that's, essence. That's all you have. And that's, that's all you have. And when somebody tries to take that from you, you know, especially, I mean, everybody knows um, that with sexual violence and sexual crimes and rape. That's what it's about. That that's what it's about. Everybody knows that. It's, it's the basis of the entire Me Too movement. But isn't that also what... Uh, what is happening when you said they don't want to just destroy you. They want to take everything you That's have. Right. The That's fastest way mm. is to betray yourself. Oh, they want you to betray yourself. Oh, because that's the biggest prize of they, all. They, if they can bury you with your own words and your own actions, that's the Olympic or, gold. Or get you to come along. Just get you to come along and say, you know what? I thought this. I think this. Play along. Isn't that take you? Doesn't that doesn't that crush your soul and who you are? If you just if you know. Oh no! You know what it's called. There's a tactic. It's a. It's. I'll tell you exactly what it is. When they have you on the ground in the dirt on your back with nothing, and their foot is on your throat, they reach forward with one hand and they see if you take it, and if you take it, you're theirs forever. You can have it all back. You can have the the glory, the recognition. You can be, you know, wined, dined in Washington. You can get every award that your industry has to offer. You can have it all if you take the hand. And if you don't take it, they never stop coming. That's the story of Jesus in the desert with the devil, <laughs> with Satan, where I'll give you everything. At his most broken place, I'll give you everything. You can have it all. Just do this one thing. Just say this one thing. So you know who didn't take the hand? Mike Flynn didn't take the hand. You can see who did. Just name him among his peers. Who did? Who took the hand? There's a few of them, right? And I will say, full disclosure here, um, Mike Flynn, I've known Mike Flynn for a long time. And uh, I love him and respect him and his family. He is a great man. And I, I, without ever knowing any of the details, I knew from the very first moment that Mike Flynn never lied. 
Mm-hmm. That man has uh, doesn't doesn't have that DNA. He has that most underrated quality of consistency. He is always the same. And he must have been the greatest threat outside of Donald Trump because they went for him first. Can I just ask you about your husband? Yes. He, tell me about him. Well, who did you marry? Uh, who did I marry? I mean, as a, you don't have to give me the name, you know, just, yeah. just tell me. It's about so funny that you ask about him because... Um, because uh, the Daily Beast just tried to smear him and, and target him, and it's uh, oh my and there was a celebration on Twitter. This article is ridiculous. It's just a total joke. How I mean, do you so, handle that? My wife, physical. if somebody came after my wife, I would go out of my mind. Oh, well, there's, there's not a single thing in there about my husband uh, besides his name that's actually accurate. Not, not a single thing. It's just uh, a joke. And... Um, They've they've been going after my husband for a while, but you know he's a big boy. He can take care of he can take care of himself. Public life? Why? why, why? He was um, in the in the army for twenty three years, and uh, and he's retired, and all he does is get on my nerves. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and wait, and get in my way. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, I'm just kidding. Of course, you know that. Um, uh, My. My husband uh, has been at my side through thick and thin, through everything. He picked up the pieces of the, you know, the out of the dirt of Terrier Square, and through breast cancer, and through uh, my father is very ill, and he's, you know, my husband, and through all the through all the children, and he's committed uh, to his family, and he is he is a, a decorated uh, veteran actually, who um, spent many, many years deployed. Um, I met him in Afghanistan and we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't fall in love until my last few months of being in Iraq. They tried to say that my husband, they tried to discredit my work by saying that my, you know, suggesting that my husband was feeding me stories in Iraq. And of course, you know, I lived there five years and he was there for about the last eight months. And I hadn't seen him for years or even talked to him. You know, it's just such a joke the way they do this. But um, but my husband is the recipient. He'll hate this that I'm talking about this. He's the recipient of the Soldier's Medal, which I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it is the highest award for valor um, in peacetime. Wow. And it's the least awarded medal of all. And you have to have um, put your own life at such significant risk of dying in order to save someone else's life. And that other person has to be um, inescapably on the in peril. In, in, in peril that were it not for your action, that person would be dead. Um, the, that's the sort of what the standard for it. You know, it's funny. I once uh, he was asked that once by a group of sergeant majors when he was um, when he was being interviewed for an, a, a position in their unit, and um, what he said was, "Well, you know, uh, I don't remember a whole lot." <laughs> and so they were like, "Well, you know, tell us what yeah. you remember." And he said, "Well, I, I, he was in a subway in D.C. at the time. He was working in uh, at Fort Belvoir." And uh, he was in uniform because he was on his way home, and a woman uh, fell onto the tracks mm. and um, cut her head open. And as the train was coming, and um, he said, basically, I don't remember 
anything after that. And obviously what people witnessed him do was to get down in front of that train and nobody knew, nobody understood how he survived. He, he She was, I think, not able to, you know, she couldn't move. And yeah. so he picked her up and gave her to the people, passengers on the platform and, and made it, barely made it um, out of there. But actually people in the subway um, reported that to the Pentagon oh. and they spent a few weeks tracking him down and his mother was his mother my mother-in-law fellow Sam was at home in I think Kerrville Texas when she got a phone call saying you know is this is this person your son and was he you know in this place this and she was she had no idea I don't know <laughs> they had to find him to, to let him know and he didn't tell anybody no in the family no you know people act these days as if um, as if there's no such thing as any respect or regard for uh, secrecy or classified information. And and that's something that people like my husband take very, very, very seriously. I don't know most of what he did in his career. It really doesn't matter, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger Ailes was interviewing me for Fox. And uh, I had had dinner with him a couple of times, but no, we never talked about business. And, um, and he says, uh, I want to meet with you. I want to talk to you about a job. So I went and had dinner. I think I lost 15 pounds that night. <laughs> Why? It was the craziest damn interview <laughs> ever. He, the first question he asked me was, what do you think of the 1972 peace accords with uh, Nixon and China? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> And I said, wow. not up to speed on that. And then he said, tell me, tell me uh, what you think the greatest achievement of the Eisenhower administration was. And I looked at him, I sat there and I thought, and I said, Roger, I could play this one of two ways. I could bluff and talk about his farewell speech uh but i know you'd know i'm bluffing i could do that and roll the dice or i could just say i don't know i've never thought about never it never thought about it and probably destroy the interview and he said what are you going to choose and i said well i've already chosen at that going for option number two <laughs> and uh he sat there and he said nothing to me for 10 minutes dead silence for 10 minutes wow he pushed me up against the wall on everything. I mean, just, and I thought, I'll never see this man again. And he got up and he said, what I would like to say to you, it is really, truly rare to sit down with someone who knows what they believe, knows who they are, willing to admit what they don't know it's a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. That was very classy. It's true. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it is rare. Shouldn't be. But it is. It is. Only people who are truly comfortable in their skin are willing to do that. You only get one skin. <laughs> you only got one so you know there's a few things that change I always used to say I want to be taller now I'm you know older and fatter and I can't see anything unless I've got a spotlight on it 
<laughs> my children tell me I'm not fat. You're not fat, Mom. My children tell me I am. <laughs> <laughs> I pay mine. I bribe them relentlessly. <laughs> I keep telling them they're only going to get my best regards and my will. So you know good what, luck my, with that. I, you, the, you'll love this. My son says to me a couple of days ago, hey, Mom, Mom, who's this guy? Mike. Mike. What's his name? Bloomberg or something. He said, that guy gets shit done, Mom. <laughs> I said, what? He said, oh, no. I, I get his ads all the time. Let me yeah. tell you, Mike gets shit done. <laughs> it's like, you're 11. <laughs> and my 15-year-old's like, who? Mike who? <laughs> Classic, right? Thank you. Thank you. Just a reminder... I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people.